I'm Adam Levy, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Berklee College of Music's Guitar Department. Today's guest is Adam Levy. Adam Levy is a guitarist, songwriter, and instructor, and has worked with many artists such as Nora Jones, Roseanne Cash, Tracy Chapman, Lenny Stern, and many more. Adam was recently a visiting guest artist at Berklee College of Music, so we made sure to find some time between his clinics and master classes to sit down and talk to him on this podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department at Berklee College of Music, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. As usual, we are joined by our assistant chair of guitar, Cheryl Bailey. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, got my official Berkeley, the old school, old school OG. Ooh, I like that. She's got her old school Berkeley guitar department mug. I have an old school mug that I got from my grandparents' house, hand painted in the old country of Poland. So it's even older school, but not necessarily guitar. Um, we're also joined today by Ben Cody, as usual, um, our senior coordinator. Hey, Ben. Hi, Kim. And our special guest was our latest artist in residence in the guitar department, a guitarist and songwriter, Adam Levy. Hey, Adam. Hey, Kim. Hey, everybody. Um, Adam, the first question we ask everybody is, um, you're drinking coffee there. Like, what are you drinking? How do you take it? Mm. Uh, normally, I drink black coffee, and I make it, I have this little filter contraption it's just like a one cup thing it's stainless steel it's uh, from japan and uh i set it on top of my mug and i let her drip uh the coffee you want to know like tell me how much detail you want to get into as much as you want to share with everybody (laughs) um i mean i'm not sponsored or anything but i do like la colombe coffee and they make a bunch of different roasts and uh they have one called corsica that i like it's real dark i basic basically i like dark roast coffee uh black and uh i don't uh the other one they make is uh i don't know if it's pronounced nizza or nizza it's n-i-z-z-a that's another one of their darker roasts that i like um i don't understand coffee that's roasted lighter that has where the tasting notes are like stone fruit and stuff like (laughs) i love stone fruit fruit but i like coffee to be more kind of roasty that's what coffee is to me so uh you know, an Italian roast or French roast is usually what I'll go for if it's there. Usually black. This late in the day, though, uh, I have to confess, I put some oat milk in it um, just to kind of ease through it so I'm not shocking my system. Got it. Yeah. Um, Adam, did your does your coffee changing change or did it develop with all the time you spent on the road? Oh. That's a good question. You know, for years, I I like I was into the Chemex thing, where you drip mm-hmm. in a like a, a glass carafe with a with a filter, paper filter. Mm-hmm. That was coffee to me. The first, you know, when I was learning 
And when I first started to appreciate coffee, that was what I was into. Of course, you can't take that on the road. Nobody's going to take a glass, you know, like a big glass carafe on the road. I learned really quickly, like, oh, the road is about economy and stealth and the fewest things that you're going to unpack because probably less than 24 hours later, you're going to have to repack, get on an airplane, unpack again, repack. So anything... So I, yeah, I, I got it like probably what I should do is just like travel with instant coffee. Cause you can always find a kettle to boil some water, but I don't like instant coffee. I really, the, the, the mouth feel and just the aroma of, of a drip coffee, like a Chemex thing. That's what I would prefer a hundred percent of the time. And then as far as like fancy, like steam for when I was, for like the first 20 years that I drank coffee, I was, I was vegan. So I wasn't into cappuccinos and stuff. I sort of liked soy milk and then almond milk and then oat milk, but none of those really, I will now that I drink dairy, I'll drink a, a good cappuccino is a beautiful thing. Uh, and so when I'm on the road, I'll always go looking a drummer that I play with sometimes he says, if you want to find the good coffee on the road now, when you do your Google search, you can't just Google coffee. You have to Google third wave coffee because that's where the real, you know, <laughs> the real stuff is being served up. So that's what I do now. I, I Google third wave coffee. Um, and so that's my tip for travel, <laughs> traveling musicians. Uh, don't just Google coffee. Get specific about the, what it is you're looking for. I think this is great. And we're going to come back around to this because one of the things that students ask a lot, you know, coming back, you know, they go and they, and they get a road gig and then they come back. And it's like, there's all these practical questions, you know, there's musical questions sometimes, but there's practical questions too. And so I want to get in, um, to both of those with you as we kind of go through our conversation. Um, so we'll come back to it. Um, okay. but the next kind of first question that we, um, we ask everybody is, um, is about first days at Berkeley and your first day at Berkeley was just last week when you came as a guest. And um, a lot of the people who are listening to the podcast are like in their first year or they're thinking of coming to school here. And um, I'm wondering if you could share just kind of some of your impressions from your first day of, of what you expected or what it was like. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess I was expecting uh, just cause, you know, I have like a little bit of like first day of school anxiety. Like that's like a recurring dream <laughs> for me. So I was expecting people to be more mean and I was expecting the classrooms to be harder to find. And, uh, none of that, none of my anxiety dream came true. Everybody was super uh, nice and everything was organized and clear as it should be. And not any surprise to you because you three are a big part of why everything is the way that it is. Uh, so that's the culture that you have um, created and, and nurtured there. But um, 
Really, I, yeah, I loved it. I, I loved that the, you know, the, the classes that I got to be part of were a little bit of, of a mixture, actually, of some people from the guitar department, people from the songwriting department. Um, when I did my clinic with the rhythm section, which I guess is day two, you're asking me about day one, but. Well, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> so that was more of a, even a more uh, diverse uh cross-section of of your students it was not just guitar players but i assume rhythm section people and composers and and everything and i love that all of all of those are kind of mixing into um everybody gets to hang out with each other because that's what it's really like like in real life as a working musician i never show up on a gig with six guitar players you know like that's not what your gigging life is going to be like. You're going to hang out with other other types of artists and, and musicians, and so that's that's good experience for for the students. And um, yeah, I could go on, but I, I don't want to get I don't want to stray too far from what your question was. Just like initial impressions. I just I love it. It's cool that it's two buildings. That you know, at least in my experience, is that just because of what I was doing, or do most of your students go back and forth between two buildings? In the guitar department, for guitar classes, we go back and forth between two buildings. Everybody does. Um, they did it on purpose. Um, it started. It was originally just the one building, eleven forty Boylston Street, and then um, guitar got really big, and they bought the building at nine twenty one, and they put um, half of the percussion department and in about two thirds of the guitar department over there. Um, and I think it's kind of nice to go back and forth because then you see different folks and you kind of get used to that walking that corridor up and down campus. And, you know, you, when, when you and I were walking down the street, we always say the best place for a meeting is Boylston street. Cause you just run into people. Um, yeah. know, we ran into a ton of people, you know? Um, so I think that's really a, that's a cool part about it. And then, I mean, one of the things that's kind of nice about it is you get to practice greeting people. Um, which is something you have to learn how to do that was like disappeared in the pandemic, like walking up to someone and saying hi or saying thank you in, in a, like a organized kind of meaningful way. And so I, I thought that was really nice about your residency that it's clear that that's come back around, you know? So. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about your coffee mug being old school, but I think that, that part of life feels old school and I'm, I'm glad that we're back to it. Like, yeah, just running into people and saying hello and, and yeah, saying thank you. And, and because again, like that's as much part of being a musician as anything, like learning to play is just, that's a kind of given. You know, like, like, yeah, of course, you're, you're going to learn to play. But how are you going to interact with people when you, when you see them, either by, you know, see them by having a meeting that you've scheduled or just run into them on the street? I mean, that, at least in my experience, like the crux of of the music business is is those kind of interactions. I mean, that's, that's great. And we didn't have, like you said, we didn't have those for a while. And now, now they're back, so we're all kind of relearning how to do that. We're like bears coming out of hibernation, and it's just like 
oh yeah there's my friend right you know it's kind of like something you said too that you know when you have the everyone has those anxiety dreams that you talked about like it's kind of a joke but it's really not a joke right like you're afraid that people will be mean and that's true because i think there's this sort of like i don't know if it was real or if it was if it's like kind of lore that great music schools are competitive you know, and, and maybe there's, it's one of those things where there's some truth to it. And then there's like a myth to it. Um, but in reality, like the best competition I think you have is with yourself, right? You're pushing yourself and, and hopefully you have teachers who push you and they may push you harder than you would push yourself, but hopefully find people who do it in a way that is respectful to you. Um, but you're going to have to build relationships to live and work in music. And so um, it's a better practice as a younger musician to learn how to be, um, to, to push yourself and also be like a good person, like a good colleague to other people. And I think people can miss that pretty easy. So I think, um, I mean, that's kind of what we're trying to make it, you know what I mean? Like, let's make this from the start that way. There's no need to go through that interim stage of sort of beating each other up before we all learn to not do that anymore. You know? Right. right. Yeah. Um, and I had a question for you kind of about that kind of thing, because I think it's really interesting uh, because um, like I've known you for a long time. And, and so is Cheryl that you have, some extensive and deep training on the guitar as a roots musician and as a jazz musician. And then a lot of the way that people know you musically is through pop music and where you're bringing out a lot of the roots music stuff that you love. And I'm wondering if you can talk about it a little bit, like kind of how you, um, how you kind of found the sound that is your signature sound, maybe like tell people what you think that is you know, I, th I think it's pretty distinctive. Like, I don't know if you know this, but as a little aside here, um, some of our friends from like our past workshop life together, we would play a game. Like we would walk into a store or like someone that was playing like some hits and it was very often you playing the guitar. And like, it was like, how long will you be standing somewhere in public before you hear Adam Levy? <laughs> And how many notes will it take you to know him? And it was only like a few notes or like, there he is, you know? Um, and I think someone actually started calling it the Adam Levy game. Um, and it's, it's such a compliment, right? Because you have this beautiful signature sound um, that you really develop by mixing things and not necessarily by like Xing things out, but by kind of making really good choices. And I think that's something um, we're all trying to do. So however you want to approach that, question about yeah. like how you understand and how you mixed your influences would be great. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, uh, I mean, part of my sound, I feel like is somewhat uh, like, uh, so it's just hard to know what's, uh, chicken and and what's egg but when i was young like 12 i got already pretty serious about the guitar and 
my dad offered to buy me like my dream guitar for my bar mitzvah, which for folks who don't know, uh, is the third is your 13th birthday in the Jewish tradition. And, uh, I really wanted an ES 335. And that was partly because I had been listening to BB King records and I'd also been listening to Larry Carlton records. And I knew like those, you know, those guys were using that kind of guitar and there were some other guitar players I liked, but those, those two particularly. And then I also, at that same time, I had a teacher, a guy named Jimmy Weibel, uh, who Cheryl also uh, knew. And I told him I wanted to be a studio guitar player, which is how I knew of him. Really, when I first met him, it was in the context of being a studio musician. He was a, a friend of my grandfather's who was also a studio musician. And I, I so he said, you know, a really good guitar that's versatile for studio work would be an ES-335. So I kind of all that stuff factored into my, my idea. And, uh, gosh, my dad bought me an ES-335. It's crazy. I look at pictures from my bar mitzvah now, and, you know, I'm a little... I'm not tall now, but I was even smaller then, and it was such an awfully big guitar for how my size then. And um, But that shaped my sound. It was the only guitar, really, that I had for a long time, and I had, a like, a Fender Princeton amp. And that combination of the Gibson guitar, and it came with kind of heavy strings. Like most guitar players would very quickly take the strings off that came with it, which were pretty heavy, and, and string it up with something more rock and roll friendly, especially if you're young like I was. But I kind of liked those the heavier strings, and I, I never really got away from that. So, so part of my sound, I think, comes from the just the nature of what, you know, heavy-ish strings on an ES-335 through a Fender kind of amp. That's going to do a thing no matter who you are. But as I studied jazz, uh, you know, with Jimmy Weibel and then later at, at music school, I was also just excited by other kinds of music. And... um. I liked what was on the radio. I just was a sucker really for anything that was on the radio. And I was born in 66. So late seventies, I was 12, 13. You can sort of figure out like what's on the radio. There was the mainstream pop stuff. And then like the first Van Halen record came out around then. And um, I didn't try to play like Eddie Van Halen, but it was inescapable that that was a cool guitar sound actually strats in general were just everywhere on the radio back then you know whether it was a more like kind of a new wave band or a pop band or whatever and then even some of the jazz players were playing strats or strat type of guitars at that time so even though i was playing this gibson you know this big chunky guitar with heavy strings i also was enthralled by records that had a more kind of a stringy sound uh, with um like i really liked adrian Ballou on the on the king crimson record called discipline i think that's an incredible sound or mark knopfler with dire straits 
and I didn't know enough to know like, oh, that's a strat. I just sort of thought I, I would keep trying to play my guitar until I could make it sound that way. And so that I think was part of my early development of sound. And then a lot of the gigs that I had coming up, even way before I played with songwriters that you've heard of, where I'd be on the you'd hear me at the CBS or something like way before that, I was always playing gigs with songwriters and a big, you know, they, you don't see West Montgomery playing with singer songwriters. That kind of sound doesn't work. If anything, maybe like Grant Green, his sound might work more in a singer songwriter band where it just has more, it's just right up front in the mix and, and stringier and, kind of faster moving. Uh, and also for a long time, I was trying to find a way to make that guitar kind of make sense. So I did it through just learning to kind of shape the notes, the envelope of the notes. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I've, I've talked way too long, but uh, the, the, these are the things that, to me, have shaped my sound early on and and through the present. I don't know. Do you do you want to? No, I, I want you to keep going. Okay. I do because um, we do we talk about like kind of the parameters of sound a lot, like the envelope and the timbre and the dynamics and um, and also like things like phrasing and space and pacing and um, velocity versus like. You know what I mean? And, you know, all the things that make something sound effective and, and strong without necessarily having to be in your face. You know what I mean? Like, how do you so how do you think about that aspect? Like you're just starting to get into it. Go ahead and get into it some more if you want to. Yeah, well, like so when the Nora thing started, well, even before that, like with Tracy Chapman, which, which was a a gig that I had in like 95 ish. Um, I didn't know anything about pedals. I, uh, I'd had a few pedals here and there, but I was still mostly trying to get my sound from the guitar. And so when I would listen to records, even when guitar players were sometimes using pedals, I did what I, I what I found was effective for me this is like kind of maybe the first thing that i figured out that was really helpful when you're playing a guitar especially like a gibson kind of anything with humbuckers it doesn't have to be a gibson guitar but something with humbuckers where it's already going to hit the amp pretty hard like you don't necessarily need pedals to to drive it i mean i'm not talking about getting like a rock sound but in the cleanish zone that type of guitar something with humbuckers into a fender style amp is a nice combination where i found i could do more with velocity and you know touch sensitive stuff where you could almost hear like the individual ridges in your fingerprints maybe on a good day um was to turn the amp up a little bit louder than you would think. Uh, and then just play lighter. And find kind of this middle dynamic from which, without touching any knobs or pedals or anything, 
I've got more place to go that where I can get louder, which when you play harder is, isn't just that it gets louder, but because just the mechanics of how strings and pickups and tubes work, the sound changes, you know, there's different, um, overtones that come through and, um, but yeah, I found that having a lighter touch and just turning the amp up a little bit more was like the kind of the first aha moment for me that I that I kind of hit when I was in my early 20s. I, I, I was playing this weekly gig with an older guitar player in the Bay Area. Uh, people probably won't know his name, but his name was George Hannapin. And we had this weekly gig kind of down near Stanford, uh, uh, it was in Menlo Park, California, and we were just playing standards. We'd play every week, and one one week he always recorded it. He brought this portable cassette recorder, and he always recorded our sets. And one week he gave me the tape. He said, "Here, take it home, have a listen. Let me know what you hear." And at that time, I still was very much in my head about making the changes and playing all the right notes and you know, all that, all the, I was still young and that's the stuff that I had learned and tried to work on. And when I listened to the tape, it was like glaring to me like, Oh, my sound is not that good. Like that's what I heard more than anything about, you know, whether I was, how I was doing with the obstacle course of jazz of, you know, like that was fine. But his sound was so much more compelling to me. And given what I had, which was this, I had my 335, and at that time I had a deluxe reverb. That shouldn't be that hard to get a good sound from a 335 and a deluxe reverb, but somehow I found a way not to get a good sound. And so I started to experiment and try different things, like what happens if I turn the amp down and turn the guitar up? What happens if I turn the amp up and turn the guitar down? What happens if I touch the string over here instead of over here. And then, yeah, the velocity thing. And and at that time, I was working a lot out of that Mick Goodrick book, The Advancing Guitarist. So I was doing a lot of stuff kind of up and down the fretboard and living in an apartment where I couldn't play that loud So because of the neighbors. And so I was really working on how to get a really beautiful sound at a, at a low volume. Later, I'd have to figure out, like when I was playing with Nora, how to get that sound in, in a louder environment, you know, on a bigger stage in a bigger room. But at first I was like, how could I get the sa- a beautiful sound in my apartment without anybody complaining? And then how could I get that sound to translate into this weekly coffee shop gig that we had? And then... um. Yeah, I tried different picks. I tried using my fingers, not using a pick. Um, You know, I would listen to records, not just of guitar players, but, you know, piano players. I I really like Glenn Gould's sound at the piano. Um, And then, you know, many, many, I'm going to fast forward, like, well, I'll park in the middle and then I want to go fast forward. And if at any point you're like, dude, you know, you please stop me because I'll just go. But um, like when I was playing with Nora in the early days, we didn't have a drummer. Like we went from this 
band that played in New York to all of a sudden, like, okay, cool, we're going on the road. But people might not imagine that in the beginning there wasn't any money really. Like before, there was this period, like the record came out, but right. Nora wasn't a household name for a while. We were just like, we'd get in the van and we'd drive from New York out to, to Botley, you know, we'd play the house of blues in Boston as an opening act or whatever. Like we were just like doing these little gigs and there was no, it was just a three piece band. It was Nora like playing either a real piano if they had one or a Wurlitzer we would bring along an upright bass and me. So at that point I was the drummer and I had to learn something that nobody had ever asked me to do before, which was like to really just like hold it down. You know, the way that Nora sings is so phrasy, but that doesn't actually work if there's not like phrasy in relation to what, like somebody has to be, you know, either holding that down the steady pulse or at least implying it pretty strongly for all of the ooey gooey stuff to, to be effective. Otherwise it's just a, the whole band is kind of pushing and pulling and it doesn't necessarily feel good. So I had to learn to really hold it down. And then other stuff I learned on that gig was like playing acoustic, playing finger picking parts with dynamics. Like once I learned how to hold it steady, the kind of next level was, okay, how do you hold it steady and not sound like somebody built a machine to play the guitar? Like it still has to breathe. And it has to breathe in relation to itself, and it has to breathe in relation to the vocal. Um, just in the same way that a drummer doesn't hit the ride cymbal and the snare drum and the kick drum all at the same dynamic. Like, no drummer, you wouldn't hire that drummer twice. Like, you know, it's all kind of floaty. It's got its, in, its own push and pull within the drum part, and then all of that has a push and pull with, with the voice, if it's a band with a voice. So I had to learn all the stuff that drummers know. And then we got a drummer. Uh, we got this wonderful drummer, Andrew Borger, who toured with us for a long time. And then I, I was having to learn, again, how to just be more of a solo voice on the guitar, and how to scale it up to suit a bigger stage and, and get the same kind of dynamics and texture and flow that I was getting at home in my little apartment, <laughs> you know, sitting with the right in front of the deluxe reverb. So I didn't bother anybody. Like, how do you scale that up? So not only that it sounds like a show, but looks like a show and feels like a show and, uh, it took me a long time. I was really a, a late bloomer with a lot of stuff. You know, when I was touring with Nora, I was the oldest person in the band, but I wasn't necessarily the most experienced person in the band as far as like touring and stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I had just been playing in small clubs until then. Right. So Adam, can you talk a little bit about that work that you did um, when you had to be the drummer? Um, I think, cause I think the, when people hear you, um, time is one of the things that we think of and how do you work on your time in the complexities of it? Like you, like you described, like what were some of the ways you actually went about working on that? Yeah. Um, well, the, uh, one thing, I mean, it's kind of a no brainer, but, 
I had a metronome. I had a little standalone metronome. This was before there were smartphones and apps and stuff. So I had this little metronome that I got and I, I just had it on a lot, you know, um, I sometimes would turn it on before I sat down to play, like just while I was making my coffee that I was going to drink during my practice session, I'd turn the metronome on before I started. So that by the time I sat down and picked up my guitar, the metronome wasn't like this scary thing or this foreign alien thing but it was like oh yeah that's that thing that was happening while i was boiling the water and grinding the coffee and now i'm gonna go sit with it and we're gonna have a have a conversation um that was helpful instead of just like make your coffee and then sit down and turn the metronome on i always find if i do that it takes me a couple minutes to, to find anything but if it's on while you're doing normal you know quotidian stuff uh, maybe you walk across the room in relation to the metronome or you, you know, wash the dishes in relation to the metronome and just kind of get your whole body, uh, aware of the metronome and not just the part of you that plays the guitar, uh, which anyway, this isn't the part of you that all of you plays the guitar, but you know, what you think is the part of you that plays the guitar is just your fingertips or something. It's actually all of you, but you know what I mean? Like do, do others do non-musical stuff in relation to the pulse. I found that to be helpful. Another thing I used to do, I don't do it as much, but this was back when I would listen to the radio on an actual radio. Um, I don't have a radio anymore. I just kind of like stream NPR or something on my, on my laptop. But uh, I would play and kind of have, you know, all things considered or, you know, whatever kind of talk radio thing that you might like to listen to, not music, but just people talking. And I would try to have that kind of like hard focus, soft focus, hard focus, soft, you know, in terms of the, what the, you know, the metronome and what I'm working on. Sometimes I'd be so in my head and, and just kind of hyper aware, which is good if you're giving yourself feedback about something, but also to try to like, there's just circles of, of awareness that you want to be aware of. Actually, that's something I remember talking with Cheryl Bailey about. Um, and since I was by myself, I didn't have like a buddy to practice with at that time. Uh, the radio was always there. And so I, I would, it was a way for me to like, go away from the, to zoom out and zoom back in. Uh, the, another thing that helped me was I took some lessons with a clarinet player, this guy, Ben Goldberg, which didn't help me with the like patterny finger picking stuff, but with uh, the time in relation to like where you, like melodic stuff that you play in time. He got me really thinking about phrases having a, a clear ending point and like playing towards an ending point rather than just start a line and keep going till you run out of strings or run out of frets or run out of whatever, like actually think about where you're going before you get there and let that 
shape your phrase. That was a big thing for me. And he also helped me think about playing over the bar line. And like, if you've got, you know, a bar of D minor seven and a bar of G seven, not trying to cram all the D minor seven stuff into this, you know, uh, mo- you know, this m- module and then all of your G seven stuff into this module and then cram all of your C major seven, like kind of just, he, he got me to like, think about moving the bar line to different places and, and playing lines that th- kind of did that rather than just, you know what I mean? I do. I do. Um, there, and there's one more thing I want to turn it over to Cheryl in a second, but you know, I think, um, sometimes when we see younger students, we, they have the sense that somehow they're going to like find their sound and then it will be there and they'll feel super comfortable because that's who they are. And then people will hear them and they'll be like, Oh yeah, I want you with that thing. And then it's just there. And, um, I think it would be nice if you could talk about that a little bit. Cause I think you did find a signature sound, like in terms of like how you play melodically, how you play rhythmically, what your tone is. Um, but you also have worked on it all these years and all this time. And, and I think even when someone like you seems super confident and really centered, you are, but there's also, it doesn't mean it always feels like that. Right. Uh, could you no. talk about that a little bit for people who are kind of searching and hoping that like they'll find it tomorrow and then feel great forever, you know? Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. Those are two. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is really the stuff right here. So as far as like, I'll talk about the second thing first, which is the confidence thing. It, it, it waxes and wanes. There's days where I feel so sure of what I'm doing and then there's days that I can't find that. It's like when you lose your keys, you're just like, wait, where did I, where did I put my confidence? It's, yeah, I check the pocket of the pants I wore yesterday and check that all the 20 pockets in my gig bag at like, where, where is it? I just had it yesterday. Yesterday I had my confidence and now I can't or think about all the places you went and where could it possibly be? Um, there's not a find my confidence app that shows you where you left it. You know, you can't put like a little tag on it to track it. So just know that if you're young, that like that's normal. I'm, I'm sure all of your heroes, musical and otherwise, it must wax and wane but it's important to just remember that you had it what you know and if you have never had it then i think there's a little bit of fake it till you make it um because you have to believe that you can have it it's 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 never just going to show up your your confidence or your sound not, not you know stuff doesn't just show up you have to believe it. So a little bit of fake it till you make it, it can be really useful. Uh, but yeah, just as a PSA, please know that the, your favorite artist on stage, I'm sure has moments where like, 
yeah, that stuff comes and goes. But as far as like finding your sound, which is very in, interconnected with that, I think also, let's see, a lot of years ago, I was uh, having a coffee with a friend and I was saying, this was when I was single and I was just dating kind of in a messy way. And my friend, her, her name's Paula. She's like, you're doing it wrong. She's like, here, she, she's like, she got out a piece of paper and a pen and she pushed it across the table. She's like, write down right now. Don't, don't think about this too much. Just write down right now, the 10 things that you really want in a soulmate, like write it down right now. And I was like, can I do it later? She's like, no, you can't do this later. Do it right now. And I did. And I, I carried it around once I did it, I carried it around in my pocket for a while. And uh, dating changed really quickly because, like, it was almost like this spell had been cast or something. It was, it was a trip. And I, then, I, then I met somebody who was that person uh, in, in, in a pretty short time from then. And I think you can do that with your sound. Like one way to find your sound is to not care. And someday you'll have a sound that's just the product of where you've been. Like you have a sound, but, and that might be a beautiful sound. You might totally without giving it a single thought, just happen to stumble onto something and and not be unaware of it. That would be beautiful. Um, But also, you might just be chasing something around and and not be aware and just feel lost all the time. But what if you just start from like right down right now, like if you're watching this right now, get out get out a, a pen or pencil or or whatever you have and write down ten things that you want your sound to be. And then carry it around in your pocket or keep it on your music stand or tape it to your guitar or whatever. And like, just go towards those things and anything that's not those things. Don't go on that date with that person. What I mean, you know, don't, don't chase something on the guitar that's not in your top 10. And there'll always be stuff. You're always going to either see somebody play and go, Whoa, that's, that's incredible. They do this thing. I will, I want to do that. Or, you know, you'll, you'll hear something on a record or you'll see somebody play or whatever, but try, try to stay true to your, your things. And, you know, maybe every couple of years you can revisit it and refine it. You don't have to stay. You don't have to spend your whole life with a list that you make when you're 20 years old, but for right now, that's a really good way to eliminate all the other stuff. And just really work towards the things that are important to you in a sound. And and that really works. You're gonna, if you really do this, you will cast a spell on yourself and and you'll get closer to that thing a lot faster than if you just sit in a practice room and hope that your sound shows up. I think that is really beautiful and really helpful to it's going to be really helpful to a lot of people um i think as a follow-up since you've taken us that deep a lot of people think that you know if you have a sound 
and you know who you are and and then you get a um you might they they have a sense that like success and money will follow you know what i mean or when you have like one big gig you, you get it and then everything is easy and I, you've already alluded a little bit to like you know you might not realize this but we had a really popular record and the money wasn't like as good as you might think like can you talk a little bit about some some of the you don't have to touch on too much, but just the idea of like, how do you keep yourself grounded in like, and what actually kind of is real? Because like, there's that myth that you, you play and either you get a hit under your name or someone else's name and then everything just changes and consistently. Yeah. Um, oof. How many years of my tax returns do you want me to to show on screen? <laughs> share, share. 2019, share screen, 2019 tax return. No, um, yeah, it is, like, I say this, I, I don't have kids, but when I teach, especially younger people, but really almost anybody who's younger than me, I think I want you to have what I don't have or didn't have. And, but I don't know if it's possible. Like for me, the, the money thing, the most money that I, you know, made was when I was touring with Nora, like our weekly pay was good. And then I wrote a song that she recorded on her second record. So I was able to, get a publishing deal on the strength of that. Um, and I thought, well, cool, this will be my new life now. Like I'll just always have, you know, this, this gig and this, this, you know, touring income and publishing income. And, uh, so much can change. Like your circumstances might change a touring gig. If you're a side person, a touring gig that you have, might end. That person just might decide, you know, I don't want to do this anymore, or I do want to do this, but with other people or whatever. Um, publishing has changed so much in the last, you know, 20 years since I signed my publishing deal with Universal. It used to be that if you had one song, an album cut on a big pop record, that was substantial. Like, you know, you could maybe buy a house on that, not even from a hit song, but just like a song track nine on a, on a big selling pop record could buy you how that's just not the case now. But I, nobody knew that then, like nobody knew that there wouldn't be record stores and, you know, like it's just, it, you just don't, I'm just saying like, you just never can predict. So if you expect that your money is just going to go up, 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 it doesn't, in my experience and in the experience of a lot of folks that I talk to about stuff like this, it's like the better, the, the smartest thing you could do is like learn how business works uh, keep your overhead as low as possible. I live in New York. I don't recommend that anybody else lives in New York because it's crazy. It's expensive. And if you're a musician, there's a lot of opportunities here and great players. But, you know, the the more you can learn about 
business and economics and all that stuff early on, the better. I have mostly followed my heart with regard to music. And so, you know, money is just like waves in my life. Um, uh, I would like it to be less wavy, but that's how it is. Uh, but I don't have any regrets about it because musically I'm super satisfied. And even today, like on a tour of my own music, say, you know, one gig might pay, uh, wonderfully. And then the next night you're playing the same music with the same people. And it's a different thing, you know, different, uh, different payday. I don't, I don't know how you get all the peanut butter to spread super evenly on the toast so that it's just to every corner. Like I'd love to figure that stuff out, but if that's important to you, if like, if, if you, if you can't imagine like a, a a life where that's your lifestyle, then I think you have to figure something else out. You can still make a life of music, but then it's probably a good idea to, to also do something else that allows you to play music and ride those waves and not have it be something that's uh, stressful. Uh, yeah, it's a it's yeah. a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Cheryl, I'm going to kick it over to you because I know you have a whole bunch of things on your mind. So. Well, yes, I am not a person who needs to have the peanut butter spread evenly. I feel that, you know, the uneven peanut butter makes life really interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah I, you, well, so many things. I took a couple notes here. You know, I... I you said something that I, I know was true about myself, and I see it true with a lot of students, particularly when you're learning how to play harmonic music, music that's harmonically, you know, complex. I don't like to use the word difficult. It's just complex, right? Um, you get caught up in, for me, the joy, or the way we say I, it's joyful and fun to put all those ideas together. How do you navigate through them? But in there's some point where you're playing from your brain and not really listening and not really listening to the sound that you're making. So, you know, oftentimes you run into people that are at a certain point in their development where they're playing is, you know, really coming along, but their tone isn't there yet. Um, and so that's flipping that switch, you know, where you can trust how you're organizing your thoughts and your hands are coming together, but then to really listen. So I thought that was interesting when you said you were playing duos with your buddy and then you started to listen to yourself on a recording. I think that's a really important part of development. I mean, I still record myself. I'm bootleg almost everything I do. I have bootlegs of all kinds of stuff um, because I always want to check in with that. Um, and because it all, it also is always evolving, but I think that is really interesting because, you know, from my point of view, when I hear you play, um, I hear this beautiful tone and, and that really for all of us is our calling card. Uh, you know, I mean, people walk in the club because they're walking by 
the door, I'm thinking about the 55 bar or something, and the doors open and they hear a sound. They don't need to know anything about music. They just are drawn into that sound. And so, you know, that is such a key to your success. But I, and also really that you were talking about working with your amp because I'm a big believer in which I learned from, you know, the, you know, West Montgomery, you know, his, he was dedicated to using an amp. And that, because that's the instrument that you play, you're never going to play, take your ES-335 out and play a gig with it not amplified. So you need to practice with the sound that you want to create. So that, I really love that you shared that story about you sitting after you heard yourself and said, wow, I need to work because that's going to, is going to change your touch. So you're talking about that, like, oh yeah, there's a certain touch when I'm at this volume, but then there's another sound that comes and happens at another volume. And, you know, that's where I'm always talking about is, you know, you should never be, you should never be overplaying. If you get your, your technique delight, we have, we have that amp and we have those knobs that go to 11. Mine goes to 11. <laughs> I know yours does too. I mean, I can go over there. Like if I feel, oh, maybe I need to come up above the drums or the bass, I'm not going to dig in harder, which is really different than an acoustic instrument. But, you know, which actually makes me, you know, wonder for you because you also do a lot of acoustic work. How do you flip that? That's a switch. How do you flip that switch from this, you know, this whole thing that you've really consciously developed on the electric guitar to your acoustic guitar playing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, it's taken me a, a long time, I think, to find a personal sound on the acoustic guitar. In In a way, I feel like it's just been in the last maybe four or five years that I've had the same kind of feeling about the acoustic as I do about the electric. Um, for a lot of years, I didn't own an, an acoustic guitar. Like for the years that I'm talking about what, you know, where I had that gig and um, the duo gig, I, at those, that time I didn't even own an acoustic guitar. And I'd over the years just bought them when I needed them so when I was touring with Nora and she needed me to have an acoustic guitar, I bought one, but I didn't put the time in to find a sound on it. It was just uh, required for the gig. Uh, and then when I stopped touring with Nora, I think I sold the guitar that I had. And I did that a few times over the years where I bought an acoustic because the gig required it and then when I wasn't in that situation anymore, I, I might let it go and go back to playing electric. But in the past few years, I've, I've really wanted to have uh, more of a sound. And like, interest, I didn't think about this, but like during the pandemic, I played a lot more acoustic because I was just at home by myself and it's really satisfying to play. Um, I had a, a, a little guild nylon string, but mostly I was playing a steel string. And I was writing etudes and writing them for myself, writing them for my students, and then recording them. And I spent a lot more time with the acoustic, you know, just in the past few years, I think, because of that, because of just being home more. And 
I just I just put out a, a new record that's a trio record with bass and drums, and it's mostly electric. But I played some acoustic on it, and I would not have done that. I think in the past because uh, I just didn't feel like it would speak in the same way. So I'm not sure exactly what steps I took uh, other than just putting more time into it. And, and I guess recording these little etudes and things for my students and for myself, it comes back to the thing of the what, what I said about the electric, you know, recording it and listening to it, recording it and listening to it. and learning how to, you know, what, how to bring those sounds out with when the amp is not in the equation and it's just the you and the strings and the top and the room and, you know, maybe a microphone if you're recording, but if you're not just all of the elements around you. Yeah, it's a total, totally different approach, right? And I mean, I'm sure you feel that when you play live, how, well, that was another thing that you were saying that was really, it made me think of something that, that would crack me up with some friends. You know, I, I, I had this audio, audio technica. Anyway, I had this amp. Then they, they sent like this little chart with different settings. Like if you want the Eddie Van Halen setting or you want the blah, 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 blah. Is if you would just set your amp to that in any room at any time and guarantee you would get that sound. And we, and, and my friend took that chart and hung it on his wall for a long time. And you know, that whole thing that you really have to listen in each room that you play because the room responds differently, right? So feeling that also with the acoustic guitar, if you're on a big stage, is is really different because you do practice in your place where you practice, particularly with the acoustic guitar, and you feel safe there. For I don't know, I, mean, I always just felt like terrified to play acoustic guitar, like ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, gosh. I think I've just over time warmed to it and been in enough situations where I have to do it and I, I don't want it to feel less than. Like in the last five years, most of the road work I've done kind of pre-pandemic and then post-pandemic, uh, I've played with a singer named Amy Helm and, and then with a singer named Liz Wright, who I'm still touring with. And the acoustic, it, the sound can't suddenly get worse on the songs where you play acoustic. Like, you know, if the electric sounds good, the acoustic has to sound at least that good. So I, I wish I could say, so here's the three things that I did. But really, I think just listening and um, uh, listening... <laughs> And listening and talking to the front of house engineer to try to figure out what's working, you know, what actually is effective to, to the person who's out in the house making the sound that the rest of the audience hears. And, um, yeah, it's, tr I think I'm, I'm in a good place with it, but yeah, I don't have like a big, 
takeaway other than, yeah, listen and talk to people. And, and my, my acoustic setup for live is super simple. I have a, a Collings guitar with a K and K pickup, no controls. I can't do anything from the guitar. There's no preamp in the guitar. Um, I don't, I was going to show you the thing cause it was sitting here an hour ago, but I, I left it somewhere else. <laughs> it's not here, but it's this little box called a, the company is fire eye and the box I use is called a red eye preamp. And it's just super simple quarter inch in, uh, balanced, like a mic cable out and it runs on phantom and it's got a treble roll off and a boost. It's super simple. I don't try to mess with the EQ and all that stuff on board. I know a lot of guitar players do and, and that works for them, but it doesn't feel like a area. I, I'd rather just make it sound good as best as I can with my hands and have conversations with the engineer and work it out and, and not, not try to micromanage it on stage. You know, it's funny that you guys are talking about this because like Cheryl, you and I were just talking about this the other day. Like I'm, I'm the opposite because I've only, I mostly have only ever played acoustic guitars, like nylon string guitars. So everything comes from my hands. And then I think Adam, honestly, it was that festival that you and I taught for, for a long time, national guitar workshop where the stage was really huge. And, and so I had to put microphones there and that was like my first experience with monitors and stuff. And it was really, you guys who were like, okay, well the microphone kind of has to be part of your sound. Like you have to play the microphone. Like you have to learn like where to put it. So it picks up what you want it to pick up and it doesn't pick up the things you don't want it to pick up. And, and then after that year, I ended up working in a recording studio. And so I really learned about, um, you know, as a producer and a, and I set up mics and, and you could really start to learn that stuff. Like where do you put things and for recording versus, um, versus live playing too, like where it really has to be loud. And it honestly still surprises me. Like we played this faculty concert <laughs> we're back in a larger hall now that we're not all wearing masks and things aren't in smaller rooms. And like, I, I was playing with my duo partner, who's a faculty member and electric player. And I was so shocked again, at how loud it was. And, and I was, you know, for me, and then later you listen to it, it doesn't sound loud in, in the recording or the live stream it does not sound loud. But like when I'm in it, like Cheryl and everybody are like, they're on the, all the electric players are like, Oh, turn it up, turn it up. I'm like, turn it up. Like, are you kidding me? You know, it's like, and then I'm doing that thing, Adam, that you're talking about, like, Oh, like, how, like backing off. I'm like, am I even touching it anymore? You know, it's a whole different thing. And, um, I had a guitar actually built to play in black box theaters and in, in halls that are kind of dead. Like, so that I don't have to deal with the wolfy microphones and like, sometimes the nicest acoustic guitar is not a good choice for the hall. If you're going to just mic it, if you're not going to use a pickup or cause those things are built for sound. I know like classical guitars are like, no, I'm a purist, but my feeling is like, instead of, making everything sound the same, no matter where you are. It's like, find the beautiful way to sound that fits the place. Right. And, and I, that was a huge learning experience for me. And, um, and I, I'm really glad that you, you both talked about that. It was really important. Um, ben, you always have a great question that you ask everyone. Could you, could you jump in there? 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I think I mean, some of the conversations we've had already, you know, we might have already kind of touched upon what Adam's answer might be, but usually we like to ask all the guests that come on here. Um, if, if you could go back, you know, to, you know, back, back to when you're first kind of, you know, getting your bearings and first, you know, having come coming into the industry, what's one thing that you wish you would have asked one, you know, one question you wish you would have sought out that you didn't, that everything, you know, now, that you'd look back and say, oh, you know, I, I wish I, I reached out to someone or, or you know, try, tried to figure out this question that you did, that I didn't. Mm. Um. Hmm. Wow. Oh, that's so good. I'm just thinking about that. Well, I I guess it like the thing that I was saying about dating and about your sound. I think you could also apply to the life that you want to have in music. And, you know, I uh, have, as I said, basically followed my heart. And so I don't have any regrets. But there's definitely times I look back and go like, oh, yeah, that was kind of a detour, really. Maybe I didn't need to to do that at that time. Maybe I could have stayed more on track to the things that are really important to me. I mean, sometimes we make decisions just on a lark. Sometimes we make decisions because you have to pay rent that month and you're like, okay, I'll do that gig, even if it's not on your top 10 list of what you're trying to do. But I think a question I I would have asked myself myself is like, um, what are the things, and it might not even be 10, a list of 10. It could just be, it could be three things or five things. Like, what are the most important things to you to be doing musically, professionally? And are you okay with eliminating everything else? You know, uh, and and so for different people that that could be different so somebody might have a, just a singular thing you know you look at somebody like Tommy Emmanuel and at least in the version that we know of him now i mean he played electric guitar earlier in his career he he played electric guitar but we think of him as like a solo steel string acoustic guitar fingerstyle player and it's just real hyper-focused. I mean, he does a lot of different things, but it's real clear. And I, I think I've arrived where I am by doing a lot of different things and by breathing different air and swimming in different water and or whatever metaphor you want to use. So as I say, I don't regret it, but... Uh, now that I'm in the, you know, in my late fifties and I, I don't have 
infinite time <laughs> left, I start to think about this kind of stuff more. And maybe I wish I'd thought about it slightly sooner, like just making that kind of like, what, what, what is, what are my must do's? What are my must not do's? And, and how, how can I, do more of the do's and less of, of, of the don'ts. Cause if you're not clear, not only can you spend, can you sometimes waste time in this stuff? That's not really that important. You also might waste time just going back and forth. Should I do this? Should I not do this? I don't know. Whereas if you have some kind of Northern star, it's, it's helpful. Yeah, I really like that. I think that's true. And I think it's also sort of, um, it's like you were saying in one of the classes you gave, like, like pay attention to what you're really doing and focusing on and, and be okay claiming it. Like, okay, well, that's that's how I sound and that's what I do. Instead of, like, is that the right thing or should I be doing something different? Just sort of, like, claiming what it is that you find yourself doing as the thing maybe that you want to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like, it sounds really simple when, when you think about it, but I think it's really hard, especially for the, um, I mean, for all of us, it's hard, honestly, but like I think a lot of the, students who are listening are in that time where like they want to find out who they are, but then they're afraid that who they are might not be the right, who they should be. And then, so like to not claim it is also makes it harder because then you're not kind of honoring it and working on it in a way, you know, you're robbing mm -hmm. yourself of that focus, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You will, it's possible to lose a lot of sleep over uh, the stuff that you're not sure about. And the more clear you are about really two things, like wh what is this thing that, that Kim is talking about? It's like, who are you and what do you do? And to be okay with that. Uh, the sooner you get there, the better. Easier said than done, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, it's easier said. Otherwise, like, yeah, <laughs> life would be really different. Like, yeah. So, also, I'm thinking also about what Ben said. Like, this other thought just came to me about, like, what do I wish? Like, the other thing is, like, being aware of, that who are the people that you that are there <laughs> listening to you and what are they what are they there for like they're probably not there to analyze your you know harmonic content or your like chord scale relationships if you're in a concert hall or a bar or uh wherever you are, there's people there that have chosen to be there. Nobody just is there. People are there for some reason to hear you, to have a beer, whatever. Try to 
connect with those people and, and don't stay in your own bubble too much. I mean, stay there as much as you need to, to get your work done, you know, do what you came to do. But remember that, that like there's an opportunity to, to connect with people. And I know that maybe that just seems really obvious, but I didn't figure that out. I was so in my head about music and whatever and still am sometimes. And like the best thing that you can do is connect with people. And that's what that's what we're doing. Like we're, we're performing artists, like in the broad category of what all of us does, we're performing artists and performance is not something you do in a bubble. You know, you're, you're part of uh, something with people. It's a kind of a service. And if you forget that, then you're just, you can still have a good time and you can still play great, but there's just more there that there's more to discover if you haven't got to that part of it yet. That's really, thank you, Adam. That's really great. Um, Hey, Cheryl, as we're kind of, wrapping up our coffee today. What's on your, um, what's on your mind at the end? Yeah. Well, thank you, Adam, for coming. Well, for your work with the, our students and, and our faculty last week, everybody really loved what you shared um, and were inspired and had a good time. All the things that you are setting out to do, you did them. And, and thanks for all the things. <laughs> thanks for all the things, you know, I, I think, you, you talked about a lot of things that, I mean, you know, our, our students listen to this podcast and guitarists and people beyond the Berkeley community listen to it. And I think everybody um, will get a lot out of your thoughts about really, you're really talking about listening on all these different levels and all these things, whether you're listening to your own sound and then listening to the musicians you're playing with to create a, a big sound together. So anyway, thanks for um, sharing all those really deep insider insider tips with us. Mm. Yeah, my hey, pleasure. Ben, what about you? Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for coming on with us. I mean, all of our guests are, are all great, but I feel like this episode has some especially valuable insight just on, on all your experience and, and just... Um, your your approach and, and everything so thank you for sharing all of that yeah ben thank you so much thank you so much adam we really appreciate um everything that you've been sharing um do you have a final thought for everybody or yeah <laughs> uh i just want to uh, dip back to something that Ch- cheryl said just a few seconds ago of like, yeah, your sound is making a big sound is something that we do together. You know, assuming you're not playing a solo concert. Yeah. Everything is part of a bigger thing. And that's just something to be aware of. And um, 
yeah, other than that, I'm just I'm so glad to get to spend this time with you. My 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 few days on campus went so fast. So this feels like a real like kind of a bonus to get to spend a little more time with the three of you and not be rushing to get, you know, from one place to another, but just to kind of sit and and have a talk. So this has been really nice. Yeah, this was really nice. I think um the more you were there the the less everybody wanted you to go. So thanks for coming back, and we hope you come back again in person and, and back here. Um, so everybody who's listening, um, we're going to hang out, the four of us, for a little while longer. Um, but for the rest of you, it was great to be with you for this hour, and um, and we'll see you next time, and we'll, or we'll be with you next time on the next Coffee Talk. Bye, everybody. <laughs>